Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. Good morning. Okay, the scripture this morning is going to be Mark 10, 46 through 52. They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, come, come and do what only you can do. Come, Holy Spirit, come, come and do what only you can do. It's our prayer today. Come, Holy Spirit, come, come and do what only you can do. Come, Holy Spirit, come, come and do what only you can do. Y'all can be seated. How about now? Ooh, that is that is crystal clear. You may not like anything that's said, but you can hear it. All right. Hey, um, if you have uh, missed a uh, Sunday these past couple weeks, or uh, this may be your first Sunday, uh, I want to just fill you in that we've been in a series that we call Decide. Um, this is a series that we're doing as we're being a church that is pursuing to be spirit-filled and spirit-led for those who don't have a home, we thought we would take a couple of weeks for the beginning of the year and talk about how do we make spirit-filled and spirit-led decisions, especially when things do not feel straightforward. And to just run through the series so far, in the first week, we actually talked about um, when it comes to decisions. Decisions are actually a way that God loves us. It is a way that God actually invites us to partner with him. We read in the beginning of the Bible how God's decisions in the beginning reveal God's goodness. So God actually invites 
us into a world that's not fragile or stagnant or a model that's like, don't mess this up. But God is more like this divine father with a massive bin of Legos that dumps it out in front of us and says, make it happen, Captain. That is what he's offering to us. That we take the good that God has created and we make more good in the world with it. In the second week, we talked about how uh, um, if God loves us and knows us and wants the best for us, then we can invite God to help us in our decision making. The world may make decisions, but we actually have the opportunity or the practice of what Christians have called historically discerning, that we actually distinguish what is God's will and what does God desire for us in our life with him. And in this third week, we're talking about, or, or yeah, and we covered in, the, in this T-chart last week of like, there are ways that people go about deciding of like, uh, you know, how am I going to feel about the outcome of it? Pro and con lists, maybe a random sign will drop over me, or we just ask around for people. But we talked about how discerning is actually the practice of listening and weighing and emptying and actually asking God in prayer, what is your desire? What is your will? Now, in this third week, what we're covering is we're covering how to get to the bottom of it. In other words, uh, to maybe take the words from Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and discern what is God's will. In this third week, I want to talk about how do we actually open our mind up to God? How do we let God actually change our mind? Or to put it more theologically, how do we open our minds to the mind of Christ and then make decisions the same way that Christ may make those decisions? Um, there was a study in 1975 by uh, the University of Stanford that I think was very revealing. They did a case study where they were exploring what does it actually take for you to change your mind? They actually took two groups of people, and here's how they conducted this study. First, they needed to find something that was extremely weighty. So what they did is that they brought in two groups of Stanford students, and they put in front of them multiple what would be uh, labeled as uh, notes uh, from people who had committed suicide or ended their life. They wanted something that was weighty for people. And they would put these notes in front of them, and they would tell them some of these notes are fake. Others of these notes are real. Can you distinguish which ones are real and which ones are fake? And really, it didn't matter which ones were real or fake, because what they wanted to tell each test group is they wanted to tell the first group, no matter which ones they selected, 96% of your answers were correct. And to the second group, no matter what their answers were, they told them, you keep missing the mark. You are only getting 10% of these things correct. They walked them through this entire process, tell both of these groups, people celebrate, people mourn because they're either getting them right or getting them wrong. And then at the very end of the study, Stanford comes back and they're like, hey, by the way, just kidding. All the information we told you was not correct. 
basically we told you either 96% or 10% basically was a lie. So never trust Stanford is what I'm trying to say. But they looked at people and they were like, no, there's actually no facts that determine that you are really good at distinguishing which one of these are real and which one of these are fake. And what's interesting is that when they did an exit interview with people from group one and group two, the results were fascinating because the group, the people who were in group one still said coming out of the interview, I believe that I am better than an average student figuring out what is true and what is not true. And group two actually came back with the results of saying, you know, I actually think that I'm lower than the average student in being able to figure this out. The bottom line was this, people did not change their minds about how their decisions were made, even after evidence and facts were given to them. But Stanford was not satisfied with this. They said, we're going to do this not once, not twice, but three times. We're going to test it over several years. And what's fascinating is as you watch the study, one, nothing changed. People still thought they were right. People still perceived that their decisions were the correct decisions. But they found with a third test group that people actually dug in their heels more and became more emotional. And they were more attached to how they felt about their perspective and decision. In other words, Stanford came back and said, it is not information that truly changes our minds. We like to think we are extremely logical people. Give me the facts, give me the evidence in front of me, and I may change my mind. And Stanford actually goes through this study to say, mm, there's something that's more emotionally attached when it comes to your view and your decisions of things. That's not just evidence that sways us, but sometimes what's needed is actually encounter. That's what changes us. And some of us in our life experience, we know this, right? We can be beep bopping along in life and we encounter a moment that changes us forever. The first time you're released from a job changes your view of the world. The first time you receive a diagnosis that you never thought you would receive, it changes your world. Which makes us think if we're people that are very hard to convince, God has his work cut out for him of how does he actually help move us in his desire? And that's the question I want to answer today is how do we come to God and help God help influence our decisions rather than playing just a mental game in our mind where we're like, I'm going to make the decision I already feel like is best, but I'm going to say I prayed over it because that's going to make me feel a little bit better. How do we encounter God to change our mind? If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Mark 10, where you heard one of these stories that were placed um, and read this morning. Mark 10 is this moment in the Gospels where the writer Mark actually places two moments of encounter side by side. Now, if you read the stories of Jesus and the accounts of Jesus, you'll notice each gospel is laid out a little bit different. 
And the reason it's laid out different is not because there's inconsistencies in the scripture, but that each writer is trying to show you a different face of Jesus, a different angle of Jesus, especially for the first hearers. And in Mark 10, Mark places these two stories side by side. And I want us to look at each of these stories because I think looking at them together actually tells us something about the work of Jesus. If you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll start in verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We'll display it on the screen this morning. So this is the first encounter. Uh, James and John, son of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a small order. <laughs> and he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, appoint us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. In other words, let me pause. This is the disciples coming to Jesus and basically being like, hey, we see where this thing is going. We think you're the man. We think you're the guy. Um, if we were putting this in like office terms, basically they're asking like, can we have a place in your cabinet? Like when you ascend to glory, when everyone recognizes how big of a deal you are, can we sit at your left and right? In other words, underneath that question, they're asking for security. They're asking for affirmation to be seen in a particular way. Now, Jesus' answer, uh, beautifully straightforward. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they reply, we are able. <laughs> Jesus goes further and basically describes to them, and maybe the cup language and baptism language is kind of confusing for you. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, the cup is sometimes referenced as suffering. This is why, you know, in that passage that Kelly Banks read earlier in communion of Jesus talking about, take this cup from me, this suffering. And baptism maybe wouldn't be thought of the way you or I may think of baptism, but baptism would be almost this word imagery of immersing yourself into darkness or into death for life to actually happen. And Jesus, he has his finger on the pulse. He's basically saying there is no crown without first a cross. And I'm not sure you guys are getting this, that this is not leading in a direction that's going to seem positive. That in order to follow me, it's not stepping up, but it's actually stepping down. So you find in this first story that James and John, Jesus uh, is interacting with them. Their question that they bring feels slightly manipulative. Jesus asks him, what do you want? And they say, we would like honor and we would like security. But that's the first story. The second story is the story that you just heard read moments ago. So this is uh, dropped down to verse 46. So they came to Jericho. And as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. Now, Mark's beautiful. He is already giving you an Easter egg in this passage. Timaeus would be another way of saying the son of honor. So G Mark has just told a story about someone being like, hey, I'm looking for honor. 
he's like, I'm not sure you understand the type of honor that we're talking about. Then Bartimaeus, this blind beggar who doesn't have much at all, son of honor, comes and makes a request to Jesus. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus began to shout out loud and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. So just to recap, you find Bartimaeus comes to Jesus and he comes mercifully to Jesus asking for mercy. And Jesus presents the same question. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And what Bartimaeus asks for is not safety or status. What Bartimaeus asks for is sight. Now, Mark is showing some irony here. The first is, of course, the people who are the closest to Jesus are actually the furthest in understanding what his kingdom is about. There is a word for some of us that proximity does not immediately equal intimacy. But I actually don't want our attention to be distracted by just what the people in these passages are asking. I want us to pay attention to whether if we're talking about a manipulative heart coming to Jesus or a merciful heart coming to Jesus, did you notice between the two stories, Jesus is consistent in what he asks of each of them. Jesus says to both people, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question of Jesus. For both groups of people, that come to him asking something from him. No matter what the approach, that's the question. Maybe to frame it and thinking of it this way, and some of you are going to be like, mm-hmm, I get this. Um, let me tell you, uh, my worst approach I ever had in addressing my mother growing up, I can, I can still remember uh, the conversation. I don't remember what I wanted from my mother. I just remember thinking and going in. I think I needed like... I need like something like laundry wise or something done in the middle of the week. And I knew my mom, like she hated like any requests like that. And I was like, okay, I got to go in and I got to be confident. Okay. And I'm going to be so confident with my mother that I'm going to exude confidence. And she's going to be like, you know what? He's right. Like I should help him with this. So I remember my speech went something to the effect of this. I went into my uh, parents' room and uh, I said to my mother, I said, look, Renee, okay, I thought using the first name would establish authority. Don't jump ahead of the story. I said, look, Renee, we all have jobs in this household, okay? Dad's job, pay the bills. My job, make the grade. Your job, take care of this household. And I'm going to need you to step it up in this really specific way, okay? Um, do I need to go further in how poorly this story goes from here? After 
I started feeling like blood circulating in my hindquarters again. I remember the story going something to the effect of, now, young man, where do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Would you like to try this conversation again? All valid questions with a reasonable response. And yet, I want to propose to you what is presented in the scriptures from Jesus, your Savior, is he does not respond to you with the same type of heart. Did you notice that both groups of people come to Jesus and the first response of Jesus is not, where do you get off? Excuse me, some of you know this one. Excuse me, would you like to start over again? Where were you when the world was first created? And now you're coming to me and Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus' heart is kind. And this is a word for some of us this morning, because I think we grew up thinking that we needed to come to God and we needed to have all of our motivations and all of our requests worked out before we came to Him. And we needed to ask things in the proper and right way. And one of the graceful things of Jesus is that Jesus actually longs to process with you what your heart actually desires. Not what you're trying to fake that you desire, but Jesus actually wants to hear from you what your heart truly desires. I remember one of the first times my spiritual director told me, you know, breakthrough with God tends to happen when you say the one thing that you truly feel, but you're convinced you're not supposed to say out loud to God. And I found in my journey that that is actually true, that when you say to Jesus, what you actually want. I'm not talking about the fake. I'm not talking about what sounds like you should ask. When you say to Jesus, this is what I want, Jesus loves that because Jesus longs to process with you. And when you name out loud to Jesus what you want, we do it not because Jesus is like a genie from Aladdin. He's like, well, finally, I wanted to know what you wanted so I could grant it. Jesus likes that we put it out there because our motivations are revealed. That we can actually start to see what is the motivation behind the things that we want. That we can present our request to Jesus and we slowly start to see what he already sees. Maybe one way to think about this is that when we come and we have a decision before us, when we are honest to Jesus about what we want the answer to be or what we want, it is the first chance for us to see what are the motivations behind it. When James and John come to Jesus and they make their request, they are looking for something that they can protect, something they can possess, or something that they can prove. You may have never come to Jesus and asked to sit at his left or his right, but I simply put before you, have there been times and decisions in life 
that you've come to Jesus and you've wanted something in particular because either you want to protect or possess or prove. And by protect, possess, or prove, what I mean is you want to protect something of your life or your image. What I mean by possess is you want to accumulate things or opinions to make you feel good about yourself or prove that you need to justify your existence or your worthiness to God or the people that you care about. And what's beautiful in this story is Mark puts side by side someone who comes to Jesus not seeking security, but is seeking sight because Bartimaeus has nothing to protect, very little to possess, and nothing to prove. And what Jesus loves to give is sight. He loves to give sight to you and I when all we can see in our own sight is we want to protect or possess or prove. As a matter of fact, in between these stories, Jesus actually, after asking what's on your mind, tells both groups, here is what is on my mind. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. This is the mind of Christ. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The motivation of Jesus is not to protect himself or prove himself or possess, but actually to offer his life to God. The mind of Christ is not captivated by protecting or proving or possessing. It's one that says if you want to live a great life, then you live one as a servant, as a one of asking, like, what does sacrificial love ask of me? It's a life that makes decisions not based out of fear, but a life that makes decisions out of selfless love. And Jesus frees us. In his name, he actually invites us to not make decisions that are based off of protecting or proving or possessing. He frees us to make decisions that are other self-love, sacrificial kind of decisions. That he helps mold and transform our selfish desires and moves us to people who make decisions for others. And he proves this with his life. You have James and John who come to Jesus and are like, let us sit at your left and right of glory. And we find later in the Gospels, Jesus' moment of glory is actually being hung on a cross. And James and John are nowhere to be found to his left or his right. And that does not bother Jesus. Because Jesus is not motivated by proving, possessing, or protecting. He gives his life so you can give of your life in a different way. This is the mind of Jesus. So when we make decisions, one of the invitations is for us to actually put on the mind of Christ and make decisions the way Jesus would love for us to make decisions. Now, I know in saying that, that sounds extremely impractical. 
sounds really like fancy, but it's like, how do we actually do that? So that's where I'm going to finish is I'm just going to talk about four ways that you actually invite the mind of Christ to maybe change your mind or in the words of scripture, transform your mind. Here's the four that um, is here. All four of these can be found in the story of Bartimaeus. Uh, the first one is this, of turning ourselves over to Jesus and his saving. Uh, in the Bartimaeus story, you actually find that um, he cries out to Jesus, Son of David. Another title for Jesus would have been Messiah. Like he's calling out to Jesus with this recognition or term. I know you probably may already know this, but by the time you get to the Gospels and read through the Gospels, there are not a lot of miracles that are actually new that Jesus is doing. There are actually prophets who have come and have done some of the same miracles. But the miracles that are different for Jesus is the miracle that is actually in the prophetic books of Isaiah, where it says that the Messiah, the one that God is going to work his power and salvation through, isn't just going to do wondrous things, but he's actually going to give sight to the blind. And Bartimaeus knows that Jesus is not just another prophet. He calls out to him as the son of David, the Messiah, the one who God is working his purposes through. In essence, he is saying, you are the one that brings salvation to us all. So one of the first ways we turn ourselves over to the mind of Christ is we turn ourselves over to the saving of Jesus. And the path in which we do this is actually through one of those words that was used earlier in the scriptures, that we actually are immersed, that we are baptized. If you notice in the Gospels, it says that you know Jesus declared, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent did not have the meaning of, you need to fall down on your knees, break down crying, and be an utter mess, although it can look like that. The word repent would literally mean to change direction. It would mean to think differently. It would mean to turn your allegiance another way. So in baptism, when we step into the waters and someone plunges us into the water and pulls us up out of the water, what we're doing is we're actually plunging ourselves into a new story, a new reality. It's us actually claiming that our allegiance is to God's story and what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And there's something powerful that happens in that moment when we give ourselves over to God. Second one is this, that we turn ourselves over to his teaching. So not only do we pledge our loyalty and life to Jesus, but the second thing we do is we actually sit under his teaching, his words, and we let him reform our mind. I had, um, had a roommate at one point in my life who um, they were the type of person who would always have all of their phone conversations out loud on speakerphone, which um, I still want to inform everyone that is socially unacceptable. Okay. The rest of the world does not need to hear your phone calls, but he was the type of guy that if his phone was on. It was always out loud and it annoyed all of us. But I remember one day as I was brushing my teeth, I was hearing him walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And before I chewed him out, I realized he actually had scripture being read 
out loud, which I was like, well, thank goodness I didn't say anything to him about it at that time. So I just watched and over and over again. Every morning, he would let the words of Jesus be read over him. And finally, I was like, hey, you know how I feel about this phone being on all the time. Why do you do that? And his response would just be like, oh, I'm just trying to let Jesus change my mind. I was like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, I already have a way I want to deal with conflict. I already have ways that I want to handle my commitments. And I need to hear the teachings of Jesus over and over again to rework my mind. Maybe one way that John Mark Comer is saying it just so directly right now is that your life with God is not a transaction. Your life with God is actually transformation. That Jesus came not just to show what God was like, but also to enable us to become like God. And we do that through letting his teachings be in our mind. The third one. Oh, he, uh, I forgot to mention this. I mean, Bartimaeus literally says, my teacher. Okay. Third one. We turn ourselves over to his presence. I think one thing that a lot of people don't catch is that when Bartimaeus moves to Jesus, he says he throws off his cloak. I don't know if you've checked the weather in Jericho lately. Uh, you don't need a coat because it's extremely cold outside all the time. A coat would actually be a way of spreading out in front of you and receiving donations or offerings from people. So when Mark writes that he threw off his coat, he's quite literally wasting money. He's wasting the time that he has given. He is moving aside to be able to be face-to-face -face with Jesus. And if we want the mind of Christ to enter into our decisions, we not only need to sit under his teachings, but we also need to give him our presence, that we need to be face-to-face -face with him. Quite literally, we need to spend time in silence in front of the presence of Jesus which takes a sacrifice, right? It takes a sacrifice of other things that we could be making money. It takes a sacrifice of time after we've put the kids down for bed and it's just our time. It takes sacrifice of maybe hobbies that we want to do, but we make sure we actually sit in silence before the presence of God because it forms us. And we take it even if it costs us something. And then the last one, which I really believe like is, is something that we're growing in right now collectively, is we turn our decisions over to him. And this is extremely practical, and for some of us, I think this may be kind of new for us. But if we're people who are being transformed into the mind of Jesus, then we in prayer should actually ask, Jesus, what is your mind on this? So this practically looks this way. What if you were to take some decision you have in your life right now that does not feel straightforward, and you were to go into the secret place of where you pray or where you spend time with God, and you sat for a couple minutes with the decision. Maybe you tell God, these are all the things I'm working through with this. Here's the pros and cons that I'm thinking through this. Here's the anxieties I have with this decision. And then what if in silence, at one point, you say out loud, Jesus, what is 
your desire with this decision. And then simply listen. One of the ways I ask this in prayer is I sit in silence and I ask, Jesus, what would please you with this decision? And then we simply just wait. I know for some of us we'll be like, so what? Are you expecting something to happen immediately in that moment? And what if nothing happens in that moment? And we're not putting pressure on God to immediately have to drop something in front of us. But what we're doing is we're presenting our request before Jesus as we're letting his mind form our minds. And then we're cognizant of it as we walk throughout our weeks. And we may just be surprised what happens if we do that. Because God loves you and God is for you, which means God wants to help you in making decisions that help you become who he's going to make you to be by the blood of his name. And also, he wants you to make decisions that reveal what it's going to look like when heaven and earth are together again. We all praise his name. So, Lord, uh, we offer up to you our decisions. Lord, we, we do. We, uh, we repent of decisions we've made in the past where we've relied only on ourselves, or it's been only our motivations. And Lord, I pray, can you see our hearts that we're just trying to sort through what we want to possess or prove or protect? And Jesus, can you have mercy on us? And Holy Spirit, can you help renew our minds, transform our minds to the mind of Jesus so we can know what your good and perfect pleasing will is. Do this for us individually, and Lord, please do this for us collectively. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we come to a close. I'm going to go ahead and invite uh, Carolina uh, Witcher, who I've never met in my life before. And uh, she's going to tell us some announcements as we close up today.